We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. I'm Jo and I'm here with my co-host B. Hi B. Hello. So today we have a special guest on the show. Well, today we have Tom Mustel. So Tom has just presented the February 2023 Turing Lecture on how to speak whale. Yes, and Tom is an award-winning wildlife filmmaker and writer who has worked with some people that our listeners might know, Sir David Attenborough or Greta Thunberg. But let's get started. So Tom, hello, welcome. Hello, thank you. (laughs) You became interested in whales after having a close encounter with a humpback whale in California 2015, I believe. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you get to where you are now and everything? Just all of that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So I was kayaking with a friend. And a humpback whale jumped out of the sea and landed on top of me in what's called a breach. And we both were very lucky to survive. And afterwards, uh, in a very strange coincidence, somebody filmed it. And because of that, uh, scientists were able to analyze the footage um, and find out a lot about both what happened that day and about that whale. Um, And for me, that was My background is I'm a biologist by training and I've been a wildlife filmmaker ever since then. And I didn't really know anything about AI before, but after this whale jumped onto us, they used artificial intelligence to find out who the whale was, who its mother was, where it was born. And I've just been finding out more and more about their lives ever since. And it's brought me into this very strange world that we're inhabiting now where machine intelligence is drawing our attention to animal intelligence and patterns in nature that otherwise we couldn't see. And I find that absolutely fascinating. But also as a conservation biologist, I find it really, really important because it's so powerful. So you kind of touched upon um, how AI can help us see patterns in nature, but specifically, how can AI and technology help us in the world of animal communication? Well, an enormous oversimplification, but a biologist is really a pattern finding machine. Um, when I go out into a forest and I try and notice animal behavior, I look for patterns. Firstly, where are the animals? What kind are they? How long have they been there? How do they relate to each other? And when I try and follow their communications, I need to record those communications and I need to find patterns within them and then figure out how those patterns relate to everything else that's going on. Um, We now have machines that can do many of those functions. And unlike me, those machines can sit uh, in hundreds of places at the same time, recording 24 hours a day for years and years and years. And they have processes for analysing the recordings that my brain doesn't, that are specialised for finding patterns at scales that human brains can't experience. Um, So when it comes to communication, an enormous problem uh, for human scientists is that we don't know where to start when unpicking the communications of other species. Um, Do they have something like language? If they do, is it arranged like our language? Is it meaningful? Are there units like phonemes in human language which are meaningless, but when combined together in different orders suddenly acquire meaning? And when you place those phonemes together into words and then you put those words into sentences and you apply syntax to those sentences, you change the meaning. Would other animals communicate in ways like this? 
for centuries or we've thought that other animals don't communicate at all and most philosophers have just dis- dis- decided that animals are unspeaking but this seems to be a very foolish thing to assume without having studied them some of the recent advances in natural language processing which is a field of machine learning especially with deep learning tools have been really surprising in their ability to translate between human languages and discover patterns in massive datasets datasets that no human being could experience or pass there's something which your listeners might know about which is called embedding which is when you arrange units within uh, a natural language in relation to one another and how they're used how often they're used and how they're used in relation to the other units and you embed them into i mean a metaphor is a sort of galaxy uh, with words for instance where every word in that galaxy of placements um uh is sort of a set distance from other words according to how often they're used and with them now we can only think in three dimensions but some of these uh, programs can embed in thousands of dimensions and so can perceive patterns in the arrangements of these, these these embeddings that we ourselves can't we learn our language by trial and error by being taught rules by being exposed to it and we perceive patterns through being uh, trained by other people um and by noticing the effic- efficacy of it we talk we try and speak we're corrected and most of the time we don't actually understand what other people are saying until we've sort of said oh do you mean this do you mean that do you mean this these programs don't need to be trained they don't need to be helped a really strange part of it is that natural language embedding has taken off in recent years without supervision so if you just feed a huge amount of spoken or written english into one of these uh, programs and then you do the same with urdu or spanish and then you get your sort of embedded galaxy cloud of all this is a, an enormous sort of metaphor simplification <laughs> your embedded ga- galaxy cloud of all the relationships between those uh, w- uh, words or other elements of those languages you get this huge complex unimaginable shape and the big uh, discovery has been that there are uh, commonalities between the shapes between languages and that if you do a sort of giant tetris on the uh, galaxy word cloud of english and sort of scrunch it over until it fits the shapes within the galaxy word cloud of urdu you will find things that represent the same meaningful units with the same relationships to one another in those languages say so you will find the shape of the relationships between king queen boy girl in those different languages and the upshot of this is that you can translate between different human languages using a computer without ever having to tell the computer that it has a language in front of it what the rules of those languages are and without ever giving it a dictionary or try or, or helping it and that's how google translate works and it's incredibly powerful really surprising because nobody thought it would work this well and it has given rise to a lot of hope in animal communication people because what will happen when we take these we're animals what happens when we take these pattern tools and apply them to non-human animal communications we know that pattern finding tools can help us identify animal faces when we've developed those tools for finding patterns to identify human faces we know we can take gait identification or gait analysis tools that are developed on seeing how people walk around and we can apply them to look at fruit flies and and uh, rats and we know that we can take pretty much every other tool we've developed for finding patterns in human animals and we can use them to analyze the patterns in non-human animals so will this work with non-human communications we don't know 
We don't know if such a thing as language exists outside of humans, but with whales and dolphins um, and with some other species that are highly vocal, that are highly social, that live long lives, that need to use communication to transfer, to coordinate their complicated behaviors and intentions, that pass tests in captivity for uh, consciousness, that uh, can learn human sign languages and uh, ersatz signal languages. It seems like pretty hopeful that there might be. That was a really long answer. (laughs) (laughs) But it was great. You covered several points. It's very complicated though, isn't it? I mean, the problem is when you've just spent like years researching a book, I'm like, let me answer that really simply. And then I'm like, (laughs) I mean, anyone that's ever done any research on anything. Right. Actually, like how you talk about it, how you communicate it is so hard. I mean, literally, as I was saying all that stuff, like there were like, Inside my head, asterisks just popping up. Not in this case. Well, you've got to explain this. And this. I was like, "Ah." like, but this caveat. Yeah, exactly. So like, basically, there's a whole bunch of invisible caveats to that too. But you'll have to read my book, How to Speak Whale, (laughs) to go deep. So we're talking about, uh, you know, communicating with other species and everything. But I bet everyone, every human would just want to communicate with their pet, first and foremost. Yes. So you said this. and and, and, And I think... That maybe they wouldn't. Because right now, every single dog and cat owner believes that their dog and cat loves them. (laughs) What are the chances that 100% of every dog and cat loves their owner? What if you could understand what your pet was saying and it was saying, I prefer your neighbour? Would you still want to pick up its poo in the park? How would our relationships with other animals break down with a bit of real talk? (laughs) You know, a lot of people buy pets because they want, like, unconditional love. Should we expect unconditional love from any sentient being? Not from a cat. I was going to say cat owners know this. (laughs) Their cat's just like, lie down long enough and I'll start to eat you. (laughs) And sometimes they just rehome themselves. They're like, ah. That's true. (laughs) I think that's it. Probably think the dog owners would be upset. I expected more from you. But the cat owners would be like, yes, I knew it all along. We just know. (laughs) (laughs) You're totally right. So when you're talking about communication, you're talking about sound rather than gesture. So can AI kind of interpret gesture and, you know, obviously language and communication language is one element of it well i guess there's a sort of wider question which is like to be able to analyze something and try and find patterns in it you must be able to capture uh, the meaningful part of it so if you were to just film loads of honeybees um, but you filmed them at one frame a second you'd miss all of their waggle dances and and you'd miss their pheromone signals and uh, you'd miss the context of what those dances related to. Mm. So you can record a lot of stuff and you can run analyses programs on them and then you can totally miss the, the meaning if there is meaning in there. Um, there are... So with... With the natural language processing tools, they were mainly designed for text or used for text first, but they now work with spoken um, English and other languages. To relate this back to whales, whales, like all animals really, are multimodal. Like, like as we're talking now, if I say, whales are multimodal, it comes across quite differently from, oh, whales are multimodal, to whales are multimodal i'm closing my eyes like all of these things are sort of relating that sentence to you slightly differently i mean maybe a better example is if i said like i really like you i really like you like you know (laughs) exactly the same sentence 
very different meaning. If you knew who we were, that adds a new layer of meaning to it as well. So it, it it's very problematic uh, to separate out, even if you can capture all of the meaningful units, if they do carry meaning, from their context. And so with animal behavior, um, a lot of the work now is trying to capture as much of the other stuff. I guess you'd call it maybe the metadata as possible. Like, who is speaking? What else is happening? If you're a whale... Who who are you who are you communicating with? Is it your mother? Is it a rival? Are there predators around? What's the sea state? How old are you? What sea do you live in? What condition are you in? Are you ill? Um, how long have you lived there for? Are you migrating? Um, uh, what is your uh, like? If you are a sperm whale, what acoustic clan do you belong to? Um, all of these things. Uh, if you're a baby, how long have you been vocalizing for? These. All of these bits of information uh, are really, really helpful as we, because this is just the beginning of starting to attempt to decode um, animal communicative interactions. I think, like for a long time, we've just decided that animals don't have language, and I feel like that has closed us off to investigating whether animals have language. But we just haven't had these tools, and I feel the temptation sometimes is to leap straight into, well, all right, all right, then what language have they got, and how soon are we going to find it? But like we have only been able to capture the voices of other living creatures for a hundred years or so, you know. So for centuries, and so until until the last century, the study of other species has been mainly the study of bodies. You know, here we are in the British Library. There's also next to the British Library in the Turing Institute. There is an acoustic library here too that has recordings of human dialects and voices and the sounds of animals and nature. But that only stretches back until really the end of the 19th century. Before then, nobody could capture any human voices. Everything was written down or pictures. And if you were studying animals, you know, 120 years ago, you couldn't bring back a bird song and try and decode it or share it with somebody else who might be better at doing that. You could just shoot the bird or paint a picture of it or uh, or get its feathers or stuff it and bring home its body. You go to the Natural History Museum, it's a museum of skeletons and specimens. And that's because we have lacked the ability to capture anything beyond bodies. Now we're in an age where we can capture what bodies do. How do they interact? How do they move? How do they uh, communicate with one another? What are the information flows, the swarm dynamics? And it's so much more exciting, but nobody is really ready for this. The Natural History Museum hasn't got like a plan for like storing all of the animal body, as far as I know, I spoke to a couple <laughs> of the curators there, um, body movements of all of the species. But I wouldn't be surprised to bring it back in a huge loop to your question. If in 20 years time, you go to the Natural History Museum and you're dragging your five-year-old and instead of saying, daddy, daddy, I want to go see the tiger skeleton. They say, daddy, daddy, I want to go and be inside the tiger movement. Or I want to, <laughs> you know, listen in on the bird conversation. Because once we have these, we're, we're sort of struggling at this early point where we've just figured out how to to, to capture these things. But what do we do with them? How do we relate them to each other? I think this brings it really closely to the next question, um, to the next couple of questions, actually, that we had, because it's about what to do with this. And how do you think that being able to decipher all of this communication and all of this non-verbal, non 
body, non-anatomical knowledge can change the relationships that we have with animals, how we look at them and at the at the world in general. Well, um, the philosopher Jonathan Ledgard believes that we're entering what he calls the interspecies age, that our relationships with an other animals are already changing drastically. And you can probably see this in your own family. Like if you were to ask one of your grandparents, like would they have considered their pets a member of their family? They probably wouldn't have thought so. But ask most people in the street today and they will spend thousands of pounds on on expensive operations for their cats and dogs. They will think of them as companion animals rather than mm, tools yes. for guarding and herding and pest control. There are people who choose to eat different things based on how what the experience of the animals will be like and what they want to happen to the world. So our attitudes towards other species are already changing enormously dramatically, but very unevenly. Um, and I think a lot of that's to do with what we're used to in our cultures and the opportunities in front of us. How this might change with machines and pattern finding engines. Well, I mean, one way of thinking about it is that one of the big drivers of how we relate to other species as we're increasingly urbanized is television or Instagram or, you know, basically visual media. A lot of people don't get to experience orangutans directly, but they care about orangutans, donate money to orangutans, change the biscuit type they eat because of orangutans, because of pattern recording tools called film cameras and pattern transmission tools called like the internet and Instagram. So, it, these things are already happening. Often, as a wildlife filmmaker, with my other hat on, we look to how to connect people to the natural world. How would somebody who doesn't know anything about the living system or individual you're going to show them relate to it? Um, as a conservationist, why should they care? And what element of that animal's life would they most relate to? famous example from history was uh, with the discovery that whales sing in the peak of industrial whaling, as we slaughtered hundreds of thousands of them a year, we discovered that humpback whales sing. And when we spread those songs to other people and they heard them, this galvanized the Save the Whales movement. It helped begin Greenpeace. And we, in the end, decided as a culture overall, mostly, to stop hunting whales. Um, that was an empathy tool. We weren't, given in, we weren't given new statistics about how many whales were dying. We weren't given... Uh, scientific periodicals that analysed them. We were played a song and we related to that song because you recognised in it something that was similar to ourselves. And when you recognise something of yourself in another, it helps you relate to them and want to do something and go out of your way and inconvenience yourself on their behalf. And that applies to people too. You know, when there is a natural disaster, it is not the statistics that move people to donate. It's the photographs of individuals and their stories. As we move from viewing animals as deterministic biological machines to individuals with lives and feelings, um, I believe that machine learning can play a really powerful role, which is to show us patterns in other animals that we recognise from our own lives. If it is showing us how a mother calls out for her calf when they're separated that would make me care i would i would relate to that if it shows me how much a chimpanzee enjoys a thunderstorm you know i would relate to it but these tools can also be very dangerous because if the machine learning tools are applied to find the most uh, mineral rich area of that chimpanzee's forest to um to clear and mine that is not good for the chimpanzees. And if it shows an abattoir how to uh, process that cow as, as efficiently as possible, it's not good for the 
you know, cow either. Did I say cow before? Yes. <laughs> I did, yeah. So I guess essentially, but that's the same, you know, you, you can use film cameras to tell different stories and you know, wildlife films help people build empathy with nature, but they can also not. You can make a wildlife film about how dangerous sharks are that make everybody scared of sharks and want to kill sharks. So, um, but we really struggle at the moment to relate to other animals in some ways. And a lot of the scientists who are using these tools and excited by them, the biologists who are trying to decode animal lives, are doing so because both they find it fascinating and because those animal lives are in dire trouble and they hope that by understanding those lives better and relating to them better we'll care and we really care about words and talking we think it's really special look we're doing a podcast right now (laughs) you're listening to me saying this right now you you care about stories we care about speech i think the effect of understanding if animals have language-like communication structures and having spent five or six years directly researching this and having spent my career and life thinking about it all the time and spending like you know, 20 years now observing animals in the wild, I would think it'd be very strange if they didn't because they go to a lot of trouble, Mm, have a lot of anatomy, have complicated lives. How else are they doing many of the behaviours they're doing? Why would they create these complex streams of sounds to do it? Um, If we could understand what they're saying, what are the societal implications going to be? Because it will rock us. Firstly, we won't be the only speaking animal. You know, that's threatening for a lot of people. It was probably threatening for a lot of people when it was revealed that the Earth was not the centre of the solar system or the universe. But none of us care about that today. Yeah, I was about to say, the humans are very egocentrical, right? They're good at thinking we're the most special. I guess, I think we are wed to what we're taught growing up. Yeah. And when it feels like everything is changing and another massive thing change, changes, that's really intimidating. And if it's related, there is no easier way than provoking anger than, than, than um, wobbling somebody's sense of identity mm. or group cohesion. And if we get our sense of identity from being the only speaking animal and we treat other animals so badly, it really challenges our sense of identity to say, well, you know, neither of those things are, are right. Um, and humans are not logical we don't say oh thanks so much that's really helpful actually i'll just like change everything we go you're wrong i hate you how irritating and having made films with greta thunberg i've experienced this all she does is express like scientific consensus and try and say maybe we should pay attention to this the number of people who avidly dislike her is phenomenal and uh, you know she's called uh, a, a woke snowflake by all of these people but mostly they're the people who seem really exactly. upset by what she's saying. <laughs> anyway, this is a this is a side point that like it. I th- I think anything that draws attention to something really important that changes ide- your idea of how you fit into things could be challenging, but also it could be absolutely revealing and wonderful. I saw that like William Shatner went up on that space rocket with Jeff Bezos recently. Bezos, Bezos. <laughs> I'm Jeff, not the native. He went, he went up in Jeff's rocket recently. I pretend I know him Our personally. Our old pal Jeff. With Jeff, friend of the pod. Um, and and as when they, I think when they landed, as like Jeff was like opening a champagne bottle and 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 beaming, I think William Shatner says something along the lines of that he found it kind of like mortifying and terrifying to be up there because he realised the fragility of the earth, looking down at it. Mm. So when you have this sudden view of yourself from outside, it changes you. And many of the Apollo astronauts reported this. That's what we as a culture got with the famous pale blue dot photograph taken back at the Earth as this tiny little insignificant seeming pinprick, 
pinprick of life in a universe, as far as we know, of non-life. It's scary knowing how you fit into things. Yeah, very existential, I think, for a lot of people as <laughs> but well. This, but this is existential. Yeah, I think like we yeah. are like we are the people listening to this podcast are living through an extinction crisis. So we will live to see whether or not the other conscious minds that potentially have ever existed on Earth are snuffed out with us or not. Whoa, that's pretty deep. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, I find it so boring that we're going and looking at Mars and the moon so much because as far as I know, they look exactly the same on them from when you stare at them from here with a telescope. I look at the moon with a telescope. I find it very beautiful. It's a white, dusty rock. And here we are in London where a whale swam up the Thames a few years ago. And if we drive to the sea, we can swim in the same waters as humpback whales, sperm whales, uh, bottlenose dolphins, uh, killer whales. Uh, these animals are potentially the only uh, communicative, cultured, conscious organisms with language-like structures that we could ever hope to communicate with in the entire universe, as far as we know. Yet, they wash up dead regularly. Right now, super trawlers are operating in the channel with nets the size of the Eiffel Tower, killing these animals by the dozen. But we're looking at a dead rock. Mm. This strikes me as really silly. Sorry, guys. <laughs> But, and how but, do I follow that? Obviously, well, very valid point. I guess. Well, I just. I think. Just sorry. That was really heavy. I guess what I'd say is like it's also so exciting because yeah. when else in the history of life on Earth has a species attained like this point where perhaps we could actually make contact with another species? And I find it so interesting that it's our technology which is enabling this. And there's like really freaky elements to this. Like for instance, deep learning tools can help us make jokes in different human languages. We can train them, or in fact, we can let them like pass huge data sets, discover the kind of blueprint of a joke and make new jokes by themselves. They don't need to be trained to do this. We could potentially make jokes in whale-ish <laughs> without us even being able to speak whale-ish. Then is that us making the joke in whale-ish or is it our algorithm? As this continues further down the line, and there's lots of discussion about alignment in AI, you know, should, how do we give these like like these increasingly intelligent tools, a uh, value system, you know, so they don't like turn us all into paperclips or, you know, grey gunk or everything. <laughs> yeah, so, like, yeah. A lot of the dudes who invented these tools don't even think animals are interesting. They yeah. think the most interesting way to live is to make sure that their brains exist as long as possible and develop computer brains that are like their brains. And if that's on Mars or on Earth, who cares? Either's fine. Be a bit sad if the animals die, but mainly they're good for eating and making nice clean air for us to breathe. That's so boring. Why? <laughs> and they always talk, every time I read an AI article, it always has some deep learning researcher or saying, humans are the most intelligent things ever. <laughs> Apart from the thing I'm making, I'm scared that that thing will become so powerful. And I'm like, what about the hundreds, yeah. millions of other intelligences on this planet around you? How do you know? You spent your life mm. at, yeah. a, at a desk. You've never spent your life investigating other intelligences. And you certainly haven't worried about imbuing a value system for the rest of the living planet into those artificial intelligences. Yeah, that we had we actually had a someone on the podcast. Her research was around kind of perching and birds. Hmm. So it was kind of she was thinking about how you know, how can we change AI systems to learn from the intelligence of other animals that are not just the human brain because obviously animals have specific things that they know how to do that humans cannot do. Hmm. So that's a really interesting kind of avenue of AI research that 
I think yeah. often like we, we're quite limited on, in our imaginations. We're yeah, just yeah. like, yeah. can they do the things we don't do well better? They might be able to do things we can't even conceptualize. In fact, they can. They yeah. can see spectrums of light we can't see. They can hear frequencies of sound we they can't can see. Yeah. They, they, they can fly. They live in places <laughs> that we can't go where yeah. the density is different. They live in different mediums. They div- Some of them can live for like orders of magnitude longer than us some of them can experience time at different scales from us some of them have senses that we don't even like comprehend like electromagnetic senses um you know how can these how can we you know how can we even make any quick judgment about how their intelligences and cognitive abilities relate to us and and whose and whose experience of life on Earth is more valid? Yeah, or more superior? Or more superior? And I think I think this is a big change that's happened since I started yeah. biology at uni. That no longer do we talk about intelligence as being a sort of scale. Um, that we are we're now, and it's so much more fun because instead of saying like, "Oh, how clever is it? Is that parrot as clever as a person?" Though I would say Nick Bostrom is not. Like, yeah, like we're uh, always the this. point of reference, aren't we? Well, <laughs> yeah, historically. I, I saw a graph the other day that was in one of these AGI things when it was like, here is a, a line and here is a, like a bacteria and here's a fly and here's a chimp and way over here is a puke person and way past that person is an AGI. Be scared. I'm like, dude, it's a tree. It's, <laughs> like, it's not a line. Like there are... Um, and I, I just I just think that's a really frustrating bit because I feel there's so much overlap between the creation of novel intelligence and the understanding of what intelligence could be. Mm. And we now understand that it's not like, does this animal sense like us? It's like, what sense world does this animal have? Does this animal think like us? How no. do they see the world? How do they see it? How does that re- relate to us? Does it overlap with us? And if it doesn't, what insight does that give us? How else could we com- more complete our known to be incomplete picture of existence because we just have a very human definition of everything intelligence mm. is defined by the human uh, scale I mean, we can't even define exactly. intelligence we can define That's the thing. yeah yeah and therefore i suppose as a result of that ai what we've created you know in an ai perspective is just doing things that humans do like better and faster and but it's human things mm-hmm. um i think it's a very interesting kind of avenue of thought and conversation <laughs> in the sphere of artificial intelligence and they're just human things now remember yeah. that the th- human things that we're focused on with many of our ai tools are just the particular fixations of our, cu- our current culture mm, you yeah. know computer games you know that's they're really interesting and they're really complicated and a fantastic way of of looking at whether something can solve lots of different problems quickly and you know with different levels of what it knows and what it doesn't know but I think like at different points in human history, we've been very interested in different things. Yeah. How could an AGI meditate? Yeah. Like, you know, like was how could an AI be meditate? Like how do you for these more subtle things where we don't have ranking systems for who wins yeah. or loses, how do you benchmark um thought or 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 cognition in a non-human system when we can't even benchmark it in a human system? Yeah, it's very it's yeah, it's really interesting. Um so to kind of bring it back to Wales no. communicating with us. <laughs> We're just going to stay miles away in this yeah, weird yeah. stuff. You shouldn't We're talking about Wales. <laughs> um, so the technology exists or is emerging that for us to be able to communicate with Wales. The question is, flip side of the coin, should we be doing that? Can they consent to us communicating with them, following them, you know, recording them? Like kind of what are the ethics around us trying to communicate with Wales? I think this is a huge question. And uh, when I started writing the book and researching it, 
I felt the big challenge was just to persuade readers to take the question seriously that we might be able to communicate with another species or at least find patterns, meaningful patterns within the communications of another species. And I know with recent developments, you know, with like ChatGPT and Bing and with the algorithmic marking of, you know, exam grades, suddenly we're seeing like how AI features in our lives much more visibly and we can see how good or bad use can affect us. We, we, we still don't know whether other animals uh, will say anything that we could understand or whether we could say anything that they understand. But what we can do before that, like immediately right now, and it's like, it's slightly creepy, is we can deepfake whales. If somebody took the first 30 seconds of this podcast, they could deepfake us and continue yeah. sort of a sound kind of like us. If you played back the deepfake that it made of us to us later, if we were like in the shower or cooking dinner, we'd be like, holy, what the hell's going on? We would that hate it like the same us. way as we hate our recordings, basically. Yeah. They'd be like, <laughs> it doesn't need to be meaningful. We would just hear things we recognize of that conversation in the same way that, you know, you can use these tools to, if you start playing a piece of music on a piano, it can continue and it can make like variations that sound music-like of that first section. So we can just record a bit of whale and play back to the whales stuff that might be totally meaningless or absolutely terrifying or nonsensical. But we have a bad track record of making contact with it between cultures in human culture. And we know that culture is fragile. We know that whale cultures, and the scientists call them cultures, have existed potentially for longer than human vocal cultures because they've been in the sea talking for potentially 10 million years or more. So these, they're very inquisitive. Their cultures change. The scientists who study them have watched how they change. Sperm whale cultures change gradually and they're arranged into acoustic clans. Humpback whale song changes every year. So if we start spraying novel sounds that sound like theirs at them, what will that do? I think we need to know the answer to that question before we start trying to do it. Otherwise, is this a new form of pollution? Is this cultural pollution? You know, um, and a lot of the scientists who are involved in this work want there to be a wider societal discussion of, as we enter this point in time, where we leap quickly from denying that other animals have complex communications to trying to have complex communications with them, should we just hold back and listen for a while? Should we yeah. try and understand what it is we're dealing with and what our competencies are and have a pragmatic approach to it? I think a really interesting analogy is with genetic engineering. So early on, it became apparent that we'd suddenly got the competency to clone humans. And we as a civilization decided that that was a red line we didn't want to cross. We had that competency and we held back from it. I know similar conversations are happening, you know, on a sort of existential terror level with uh, AI alignment and human values. But I, I think we need to have this conversation now about how we decide to listen. And should we have ambassadors? Should the UN have people who are stakeholders on behalf of the other animal cultures so that we can advocate for them and represent them. We should certainly not let private entities lead this because we have seen that left unfettered to other elements of nature like patenting genes or crops or animals or medicine traditions. Private entities are totally unscrupulous and we should be wary of the military implications of this too because you don't have to have a very complicated signal to suggest bees to leave a country that would destroy its agriculture and food supplies or indicate to other animals to swim into the cooling pipes of nuclear generators. 
you know, animals have been used for military purposes since the beginning of time. This is another way of manipulating them as well as another way of empathetically understanding them. The premise of this book and this area is kind of fun. It's like Dr. Doolittle and mm. it's so exciting. <laughs> and I think it is a tool that, sh that could be used incredibly positively. And yeah. if we decide to just back off it, well, look at the trend of extinction currently. Look at where we're going. We need to use the tools that we can, but it is terrifying to think of how these tools could be misused because nature is on its knees. Yeah, but this is the point where you have to think about the ethics, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we haven't had a great track record, I think, with AI of kind of taking a moment to pause and think about the ethical implications before it's then released into the wild. Yes. You know, there's been a lot of conversations around chat GPT, obviously being the really big one, but, you know, it's kind of like almost the ethical things have been almost an, an afterthought, I suppose. Yes. Bridal, the, the philosopher and writer, excuse me if I really mangle what your sentiment, James, but like, I think he wrote about <laughs> how um, in his book, Ways of Being, he wrote about how we shouldn't allow our imagination of what AI should be to be led by the corporate entities who've created the tools. Yeah. Like, because if you're just scared because they're scary and you say stop, that's also, I think, a really sort of pathetic response because you, that's not engaging with the tools. That's not engaging with the technology. And it doesn't engage with the possibility that these things could be incredibly useful and positive for us. We just, I just don't think they should be in private hands. I don't think they should be used primarily for profit. They should be common goods. And I think where that comes to the domain of like the living world, how could we allow uh, anything to happen in a non-consensus way? Like in the UK, when we had the potential to suddenly change fetal development so you we could like designer embryos there was a big conversation about designer embryos and about at what stage a pregnancy could be terminated and these are huge questions prompted by new tech we could make uh, in vitro fertilized like humans we could make a person outside of human body this was a transformative and extraordinary development that as soon as it came about brought a host of deep ethical problems. The people to answer those problems were not the cell biologists who figured out how to do it. They were philosophers, they were lawyers, they were social scientists, and they were members of the public. And, and that, I think, is the approach that we should have to these things. We have these massive new competencies. No entity should be allowed to own them, and no individual should be allowed to decide how they're used. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Again, you shouldn't have given me that massively powerful coffee. Like... <laughs> yeah. No, you're doing your our, uh, our job for us. You're answering questions that we haven't even posed. Uh, because I, I, what I wanted to know is you've obviously been researching research right now, right? How how everything is being studied and how it's applied. And you, you've given a, a lot of thoughts about the ethics and what should be done. So how do you think research is going to evolve um, you mentioned museums in 20 years, but what about 30 years or 50 years? What jobs do you think are going to exist? What type of research is going to be opened up by all of these technologies? And what can the people that, I don't know, the, the undergrads today or the kids in school, what jobs will they have or what research can they do? What type of scientists they can be? Uh, I think, in the yeah. future. It's, I mean, I wish I was like just leaving university now or in <laughs> 10 years because the navigation, so swimming in the seas right now are robots that are self-powered using wave and solar energy 
self-navigating using GPS systems and analysis of shipping movements, and that carry payloads that can measure anything from ocean acidification to who the songs of animals around them. You can place recording devices on the bodies of animals, and we're getting better at placing ones on using subtler tech like drones compared to wanging them on with darts that stay on without harming the animals now for days and days and days. The big challenge of all of these things is that the huge amount of data coming off them. So one challenge is getting the data out of the the ocean, you know, for whales, and the other is navigating it. Like we've never had these data sets before. I think there'll be really interesting jobs in sort of adventuring through the data, Mm. like navigating through it. Because at the moment you've got shoved on a hard drive or stuck on Amazon web services, and then it's just kind of, what do we do next? You know, I I met the Natural History Museum, the curator of mammals, and um, he talks about I think he was the one of the curators a hundred years ago, and he he never went out into the wild. He lived in the natural. Well, he worked in natural history. <laughs> he lived in the UK, but he named more species of mammals than anybody else mm-hmm. because he looked through the things that were sent back to him, and his analysis techniques and and the ability he had to find patterns in the bones and bodies of the animals sent back to him allowed him to uncover whole relationships in the tree of life and phylogenetic analysis. Phylogenetic. not phylogenetic, but the analysis of the family trees of those animals that have held up to the present day because he was so good at combing through what was sent back. So I I think the job of biologists might be changing quite a bit from like a sort of grisly person on a boat with sunburn who's really good at not getting (laughs) seasick or like somebody who likes camping and doesn't mind creepy crawlies to somebody who's really good at exploring remote information and data a kind of data adventurer myself i would be very bad at that i'm one of those people who likes getting sunburned and doesn't like creepy <laughs> coolies. but i think you know in 30 years time 50 years time we'll get subtler and subtler at observing living systems and also remotely operating things i think there are teams making these soft robotic fish that swim around coral reefs and look just like a fish i mean imagine being a coral reef fish drone pilot you know and and that like be, a video game like a video game but in reality yeah. and unlike drone pilots not bombing people you know like just like being on a coral reef but in a way where the other inhabitants of that reef mm. don't notice you and so they live their normal way and maybe you've got augmented senses so that you can hear the conversations of the reef fish to each other that are outside of human hearing and and can taste the salinity changing in the water it's nothing <laughs> yeah i want to be coming out of university right and uh, i want to change my but but this is, yeah this is happening this is happening right now and yeah, like yeah. remember like the oceans are so unexplored and they are so unprotected they are just full of mystery likewise the tropical canopies like the tops of trees are even less understood mm. than coastal like yeah. like uh like uh waters and you know so forget about mars um, i mean don't forget mars obviously like astronomers listening i'm not trying to be mean i mean like give some money to the biologists why does cern get so much money to search for things that might not exist it's cool and it's important but so no subatomic particle is going extinct anytime soon neither is mars neither are distant galaxies in the beginning of we the universe so. Right. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I love. Sorry, I love space, and I, and I'm, and that's the, my big Twitter addiction is space Twitter, and I, I, I just find it beautiful, the imagery and exploration. But the truth is, none of it's going extinct. But the living world is going extinct. Why don't we have enormous institutional, multinational funding things like CERN for animal communication and behaviour? We don't. It's mostly just individuals at the moment. The big projects are quite rare.
Mm. So call to arms from Tom there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening. And you make data science sound so cool. You said adventuring through data. And I'm like, that's my yeah, new yeah, job I'm description. Use that. Yeah, call yourself a data adventurer. Because I think a lot of these conversations are like, are, is AI going to do this or will it replace us? None of these AI tools are going to do anything without human in, in the whale world without humans to like lead them. And, and, and really what they're doing a lot of the time is just doing human drudgery and drawing attention to for humans to look for the next question so you know all of these discoveries come with sweets and sweets and sweets of questions so the the main thing is like what question are you interested in because suddenly we have so many more tools for looking so fascinating so okay we're coming to an end of the podcast can you tell us a cool whale fact as we draw to a close so you mentioned something about salmon hats in your lecture Mm. on him or about salmon hats Well, I mean, I can tell you a lot of cool whale facts. Yes, please do. Okay, I'm just going to sort of spout as many cool whale facts as I can until you shout stop. Um, Pun intended. Okay, 30 years ago, there was a craze for salmon hats and the orcas of the Pacific Northwest. They started wearing them. One female started wearing them. No one knew why. Then they all started doing it. Then three months later, they stopped. No one knew why. Was it a fashion? No one knows. The orcas (laughs) off Gibraltar are attacking their rudders right now. They've disabled, I think, over 100 sailing vessels, so much so that the Spanish authorities have said, don't sail there. No one knows why. Um... (laughs) Their uh, blue whale voices can travel 500 miles, and that's across entire oceans. What does that mean? Like, how could you be solitary? We thought blue whales were solitary if you can hear your mates an ocean away. Are they solitary? Who knows? Um, A really, really cool weird fact is that bowhead whales, we know that they can live for 200 years because some hunters killed one, I think it was about a decade ago, and they found a 150-year-old harpoon in it. And that's how we know. Um, uh, because it was already 50 years before that. Um, other weird stuff, they have prehensile penises um, <laughs> because they have sex in the sea and you can't push against anything in the sea. So you need to have a penis that's prehensile. Prehensile means it can move around by itself like a tongue. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, the, they may, uh, the sperm whales make the loudest sound made by any animal and they think they could use it like a weapon uh, and they use it in their nose. The first third of a sperm whale is just folded up nose filled with amazing amplifier a sperm whale rave would be like nothing you could imagine um inside their flippers are hands if you dissect out the flippers you see all the fingers just as you would in your own hand and if you dissect further down the whale's body you find its leg bones because whales used to walk on land and they used to walk alongside our furry hairy ancestors and whales still have little hairs on their faces and when you get close to them you can see them um what else Oh, those are really cool facts. <laughs> yeah, the hand thing really got me in your lecture. Yeah, <laughs> really it's, like, it's kind of yeah. it's kind of scary because yeah, like it, fascinating. But yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, you're like, oh, they're really similar to us. Yeah, 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 and and they have hot blood, and they have they suckle their young with milk. Oh, breastfeeding in the sea is different. Um, because uh, so the baby whales have little grooves in their tongues and they dock like those planes that refuel uh, in the air <laughs> and the mothers squirt they have like really powerful mammary glands and they actually fire the milk out like a jet um and it's whale milk ice cream would be absolutely delicious because it's got loads more fat in it because the whale babies have to grow their blubber so fast well that's a that's a cool fact i've never thought about the underwater mammals breastfeeding that's yeah. what makes them mammals right so that's what that's made them made them able to like conquer yeah. the seas um yeah <laughs> these are really cool facts and i guess everyone is going to go to their um tables and be like i know a fact and also regarding the lecture there will be a video uh online i think of the of the lecture so if we want to see a photo of the hand tom does show one in the lecture but you do have to watch the entire lecture listener yes. if you're listening um so 
Are there any opportunities for people to get involved in this work? Yes, this is one of the coolest things. Like when the humpback whale jumped out of the sea and landed on me and my friend, and the AI tool identified it using patterns on its tail fin. That tool was designed by a man in South Korea who, as far as I know, has never even seen a whale. So one of the biggest—I mean, a lot of like—I think the majority of humanity lives quite close to the sea, but most people don't get chances to see whales very often. Um, that doesn't stop you from help finding patterns in whales. So you can contribute as a software designer. You can become a citizen scientist. You can go out and um, I use an app on my phone uh, called iNaturalist, and when I identify things on my phone, um, the AI identifies them for me, and then it feeds back into the database. There's a bird song identifier from uh, Cornell University called Merlin. And if you record the birds in your park, it will tell you what species they are. I reckon quite soon it might tell you what individuals they are, because each animal has its own unique voice print. Um, uh, so when you do that, not only do you get helped by your computer, you help the computer because you're adding information into its database. Um, if you're minted, support this research. These scientists are a day late and a dollar short. Um, they are not well funded. What is more exciting to fund? A new uh, social media app, discovery of death on Mars, or contact with the only other sentient creature in the universe. That could be what that could be your legacy. Do it, guys. Um, <laughs> uh, if you want to uh, help conservation organisations so that there are sentient animals left to communicate with, march with protesting organisations, sign petitions. Mostly, just like contribute to the nature that is nearest to you. That's the easiest way to get involved with conservation. Is like whatever is nearest to you. If it's a little river, if it's a coastline, if it's your park. If you go in it long enough, you'll see the issues it faces. You'll meet the people who are involved in it. You'll find out how you can contribute. Um, feel hopeful. Don't <laughs> feel overwhelmed. Uh, that's the other thing. I think that's do. very good. It is. It is hard not to feel overwhelmed. I think, but yeah, I think sometimes going out into nature and reminding yourself how wonderful it is is a good antidote to that. Well, I find that anyway. Totally. Yeah. And also, don't feel like maybe everything is going to go extinct, but there, maybe there's nothing we can do about it. We don't know. We don't know. So just being depressed about it is a pretty... It's not going to help. It's not going to help anything. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's squandering your lifespan, which is an opportunity for experiencing wonder. So use your opportunity for experiencing wonder. That is under your control. And that's a wonderful note, I think, to finish the podcast no, on. No, no. <laughs> I'm more, highly more caffeinated. I'm highly caffeinated. And I've got like a whole book full of whale facts. And no so all that's left for me to say is thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting to yeah, us today, thank Tom. You. Thank you. My final question is just where can people find you? I think that means in a kind of internet uh, way, yeah. not... Uh, not postcode. Not post <laughs> I don't want, the, I don't want the, the, the AGIs to know where to find me because yeah. I've just been mean about them. Um, so if you want to find out more, where can, where can you point them? Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at at Tom Mustill, so that's T-O-M, and Mustill is M-U-S-T-I-L-L, -L, as my mum would say, on the phone <laughs> as a child, um, and I've got a website. Oh, and you can see my films at grippingfilms.com. Fabulous. Um, and people can get your book as well. Oh my goodness, buy the book. <laughs> that's the number one way you can help whales, is if you buy my book, How to Speak Whale, out in all good bookstores in 12 languages. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. listening to this week's episode. The show is hosted by me, B. Costa Gomez, Ed Calstreet, Joe Dungate, Christina Last, and Anika York. And the episodes are produced by Luca Lane. 
Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram.